0: Every year about 4,000 Canadians take their own lives. According to Statistics Canada, suicide is the second leading cause of death in people 15 to 34 years of age. So what if there was a way to predict suicidal ideation before it occurred? That is precisely what researchers from three leading American universities set out to do. Using artificial intelligence, researchers from Brigham Young University, Johns Hopkins, and Harvard have developed an algorithm that can predict thoughts of suicide in adolescence with more than 90% accuracy. Carl Hansen is a professor of public health at Brigham Young University. He's also the co-author of the study and a father of four. He joins us from Provo, Utah. Carl, welcome to Where Parents Talk.
1: Thank you for having me today.
0: Certainly a tough topic and an important study. Can you tell us, first of all, what led to a study of this kind being conducted?
1: Like uh, Canada, we, we have similar challenges here domestically in the United States. The suicide the second leading cause of death amongst adolescents in the United States behind only accidents and unintentional injuries. And so it's something that, you know, we felt really compelled to look at And in our own state, here in the state of Utah, it's actually the leading cause of death in youth. And so it has got attention of policymakers, uh, legislators, as well as researchers like myself. Uh, We want to solve this issue.
0: It's so interesting because there's so many novel elements to the study. Can you take us through how the study was conducted?
1: Essentially, this was a secondary um, analysis, a secondary analysis of existing data that we've been collecting in this state for uh, a number of years. Uh, The prevention needs assessment is what it's called, or in in some communities, it's called the community needs assessment. Um, And so we had over 179,000 surveys from adolescents in the state over a number of years Uh, So we had a lot of data, and and we wanted to use a sophisticated methodology for analyzing that data to better understand suicidal thought and behaviors amongst uh, our kids here. Uh, And and the survey essentially measures, you know, what are the risk factors going on in individual kids' lives, uh, between them and their peers, Uh, within families, within schools, and even within the community. And so we had hundreds of data points to look at. And, you know, in order to do that kind of analysis, it really required uh, a more sophisticated um, analytic design uh, 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 to analyze that stuff.
0: Can you tell us how the three universities work together to achieve that?
1: The researchers at Harvard and Johns Hopkins our former students. And so they're continuing this work at those institutions. We have a research lab here called Computational Health Science and uh, where we do multidisciplinary work between public health researchers, as well as computer scientists, epidemiologists and statisticians. And so collaboratively, uh, you know, we work together to get this stuff done.
0: So take us through the most striking findings of this study.
1: Yeah, Leanne, I mean, really, it came down to um, relationship between peers and relationship within families Uh, that stood out to us as the most important predictors or those things which were most highly associated with suicidal thought and behavior. So it speaks to, you know, just the power of connection. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned before, we had hundreds and hundreds of data points Uh, variables, features, if you will, in this data set and what percolated to the top fell into those two basic categories. You know, what's going on between peers and what's going on within the family. And so more more specifically, when we looked at peers um, or what percolated to the top as, as some of those top, you know, most important predictive variables, it was between peers whether they were threatened or harassed digitally, you know, through cell phone, through social media, and also whether or not they were bullied on school grounds. And so those two things were one of two as as the most predictive uh, features or variables uh, in our model. And then behind that, closely behind that, very closely behind that was what was going on in the family, whether or not family families were in serious arguments or have serious arguments, whether they argue regularly over and over, and whether they insult each other or yell at each other. And so those those three things combined with the top two were the five most predictive um, features, elements in in our model for suicidal thought and behavior amongst uh, this adolescent population.
0: We are in conversation with Carl Hansen, Professor of Public Health at Brigham Young University and co-author of a study that used AI to predict suicidal thoughts or behaviours in adolescents. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in the United States among adolescents, and the statistics in Canada are quite similar. Now, Carl, when you talk about family dynamics and relationship dynamics, anything in there that particularly struck you? (laughs)
1: Well, yeah, I think so. It's it's just the power of those relationships and what's going on between peer groups and what's going on within families. Those things are incredibly important when it comes to suicidal thought and behavior. And that's what we re- really set out to understand is what were those risk factors, kind of a half glass full approach, if you will, what were some of those risk factors uh, that are most highly predictive of suicidal thought and behavior? And And our thought is, you know, if we can wrap our head around what those things are, then hopefully we can get into the middle of it and start to do something about it. Right.
0: So when we talk about now having this algorithm potentially uh, to predict this type of behavior of you know people considering taking their own lives, how do you see this information being used by families and professionals who work with teens who may be in distress?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great question. I mean, that's really where the road meets the road is, is those of us with, uh, with, with uh, in the prevention world or who are policymakers or even parents or caregivers. Right. And so, you know, I think there's, there's some take home messages here for families. Um, You know, like, like me as a a father, what stood out was just understanding the damage that persistent, serious arguments, can have on on our teenagers within the home is 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 really important to understand when it comes to suicidal thought and behavior. but also you know within families, for caregivers and parents, understanding the role that cell phones, social media can play in suicidal thought and behavior because that's where the bullying's taking place right so can parents do something about that you know to help monitor uh, their teens use of some of these digital, Platforms, uh, you know, just seems like a no-brainer when it comes to uh, prevention here. But also, parents and caregivers, um, you know, they're under a lot of pressure these days. We we acknowledge that as professionals and policymakers. I think we need to acknowledge that, and anything we can do in our communities to help strengthen families. I believe we believe as researchers can help uh, help get a handle on suicidal thought and behaviors in kids, um, and so you know, educational programming to help families be more resilient and face those challenges and hardships. But even beyond that, you know, what can we do as communities? Uh, you know, what kind of policies can we enact that can help reduce? Uh, the challenges that families face, the stresses that families face, because it's obvious from our research that, you know, that's creeping into creating some of these challenges. And then beyond that, Leanne, you know, what can schools do? Uh, I think schools have a role here at that level, too, when it comes to kids being bullied on school grounds, you know, setting policies and rules, uh, even simple reporting system uh, to get control of of bullying on their own school grounds, creating a culture of respect uh, within the schools and and creating a safe and supportive environment within the school, it becomes really important for prevention.
0: Without question. And I'm curious, Carl, what has been the feedback that you've received on this study?
1: Well, Leanne, it's, it's gotten quite a bit of attention, you know, and And I think that's, it's mainly because, you know, some of these things aren't new when it comes to risk factors. We've known this stuff, these things to be risk factors for many, many years uh, for, for things like adolescent substance abuse, for violence, Uh, Even violence amongst the self. But I think what's really novel uh, or innovative about this is we've been able to show which ones of these risk factors are most highly associated with or most highly predictive of. Suicidal thoughts and behaviors amongst adolescents. And so, you know, it just seems like to us that that's the place we need to start, right? In communities, maybe resources need to be shifted into certain areas that begin to address those those risk factors, those features at, at a higher level.
0: At the beginning of this interview, you mentioned, Carl, that um, in Utah, the state that you live in, suicide is the number one cause of death in adolescence. Uh, What do you feel the impact could be of this study on your home state?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Uh, You know, and, and we're not calling any particular community or school district out uh, with regards to this. This was looking at our state as a whole. We do have some wonderful things that are, that are going on in our communities um, within our state uh, with regards to suicidal prevention work. I think this just speaks to the need to maybe flip the script. If we know that families are struggling and there's a lot going on in the home that's causing these issues, that's creating these uh, suicidal thoughts and behaviors, then you know what can we do as communities, as schools, to help strengthen families so they can combat this? And so in our own state, uh, there there may need to be that shift in resources to, to help schools to help strengthen families. Uh, you know those kinds of programming, prevention programming. To begin to, to begin to address this problem.
0: As a father yourself, Carl, of, of four children and you've got grandchildren as well, I'm, I'm wondering what struck you, if anything, about the study and its findings?
1: Yeah, interestingly, and, and first, our, our study also showed something that was really quite fascinating, and that is the lack of fathers in the home was associated with suicidal thought and behavior. In other words, uh, what, what our findings showed was 73% of teens with suicidal thought and behavior in our particular study had no father in the home. And so that's really interesting. And it really begs, uh, you know, the need for additional follow-up research, or research on that particular one. But it also just spoke to me about the relationship that I've had with my own teenagers and how important that is. For their positive mental health, right? And so, um, and I think that's the message for, for all parents, uh, even all fathers out there, is, is the role that we play in strengthening the mental health of our own children.
0: There's so many different messages and and sort of the root causes and outcomes that you've touched on. you know when you talk about social media and the impact of it from a from a bullying perspective on suicidal thought and behavior, um, do you think that that reframes the discussion among parents perhaps uh, that may not be taking this as seriously as maybe they should in terms of having limits on social media usage device usage etc when they hear some of the statistics from a study like yours
1: sure uh you know I, I don't think we can ignore what's going on through these digital platforms through these digital means uh and and uh it does, it speaks to the need that something needs to be done. Um, right now, I don't know that what all those answers are, but uh, communities are strong, communities have some of these answers. And I think it's a matter of helping to support families in uh, implementing some of those answers. Right, It could be as simple as uh, additional monitoring of what's going on uh, between their kids and their peers through these digital channels.
0: Certainly an important study, an important topic. Carl Hansen, professor of public health at Brigham Young University. Thank you for your time and your insight on this topic today. Well oh, thank you. Welcome back. For more than 15 years, she's devoted herself to researching and conducting workshops on the topic of emotions, specifically how adults and children can better understand and manage their emotions. Sarah Westbrook combines a varied background and skill set, which includes speaker, author, and singer, to her role as an emotional resilience strategist. She is also a mother of one. Sarah Westbrook joins us from her home in London, Ontario. Welcome, Sarah, and thank you for being here. Well,
2: thank you so much for having me.
0: So what exactly does an emotional resilience strategist do?
2: When I think of the word strategist, I really zone in on providing strategies that help build emotional resilience So I don't wanna just talk about emotional resilience. I don't wanna just say be emotionally aware and learn how to self-regulate and manage your emotions. I create strategies in order to do so. I do believe that when we talk about emotional resilience that it is a muscle, which is great news because just because yourself or your child aren't as emotionally aware right now and able to bounce back to move forward from those tough emotions that life can trigger, it doesn't mean forever it just means not yet. And so when we think about it as a muscle, we say, okay, so I could actually strengthen that muscle with strategies and exercises.
0: So before we get into some of the strategies, I want to go back a bit. We mentioned that you've been at this for over 15 years. Why back then, and you could argue even more so now, why do you believe or what do you believe is contributing to the need for this type of service that you're providing?
2: I believe that when we talk about resilience, we often look at challenges that we or our children face. And we say, well, the circumstance is what we need to bounce back from in order to move forward. I believe that if we just look at the challenging circumstance, we're not actually seeing the whole picture. The challenging circumstance happened, and it's not always in your control, whether it's other people's opinions or something going on in the world, but it doesn't stop there it triggers an emotion. So the circumstance happens, it's not in your control, but it triggers an emotion. And that emotion can be very difficult, actually even painful. And so when we are looking at being resilient, we have to look at what makes it more difficult to bounce back and move forward. And that's because sometimes we feel angry and we feel sad, we feel overwhelmed or anxious and nervous, embarrassed, confused. So providing strategies to look at Okay, emotions are natural. They're normal. There's actually science behind your emotions and it's okay to feel them, but we've got to learn ways to be aware of them, to manage them so that we can move through and with them in a healthy way and teach our children to do the same.
0: Along those lines, what do you believe is the key to a parent helping their child become more aware of their emotions?
2: So parenting is never an easy job. I mean, I think we can all agree with that. And I like to say right off the the start, especially when I'm working with parents, let's take the word perfection and crumple it into a ball and throw it out the window. I don't believe we should be using that word when it comes to parenting or many things. It's about progress. So all of us as parents are going to make mistakes and that's okay. It's about what we learn, how we reflect and redirect. That being said, I do believe the best way we teach our kids is to model what we want them to learn. I believe the hardest way we teach our kids is to model what we want them to learn because we have our own challenges, our own circumstances and our own emotions. So it can be really difficult to help your child self-regulate when you yourself are not practicing self-regulating. It's hard to teach your child to be emotionally aware when you're not emotionally aware, knowing that they, our t- kids are listening uh, not as much as they're watching, <laughs> you know, so they're watching you even more than they're listening to you, keeps things into a perspective that we must model what we want them to learn. And that when we make mistakes, it's to be honest about it, because then we're teaching our kids that they can make mistakes too, and that we're all on a progress and a journey together.
0: It's a very important point that you're making with regard to role modeling. And it, you know, obviously it uh, refers to so many different aspects of parenting and, and many times easier said than done. So, what if you are a parent who now really has to hone in on your, your preteen, soon to be teens, uh, you know, emotional uh, piece? How can you undo or improve being aware of your own emotions, like you said, in order to better help your son or daughter.
2: So I want to take a line that we hear often, uh, especially during this pandemic, because this pandemic has triggered lots of different emotions for many people, no matter what the age, but especially our youth. You know, circumstances have happened that have not been in their control, whether it's uh, a lack of a sport that normally happens, or missed events, and that triggers big emotions. I want to start with, it's okay to feel. Now, we've probably heard this line, it's okay to feel. We've even heard, it's okay not to feel okay. Demi Lovato, that many young people know very well, did a song on it. It's okay not to feel okay. Do you practice it? When we talk about being aware of our emotions and being proactive with mental health, I don't think it's enough just to say it's okay to feel, we have to practice it. So let's just think about this for a minute and everyone who's listening, have you ever caught yourself doing this? Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be nervous. Don't be sad. You shouldn't be sad. Why are you so irritated? Don't be irritated. Don't be frustrated. So just... Who here has ever caught themselves telling your own self not to feel a natural human emotion? I'm sure a lot of us right now might be like, "Yes." Well, when I ask teens this, they say, "Yes." 100 percent of the time. They have caught themselves telling their own self not to feel an emotion. And I ask them, "Do you find that helpful? Do you find when you tell yourself not to feel anxious that anxious suddenly goes away? And they tell me, no. You know what they actually say? It has an adverse effect. The emotion starts to get bigger. Like they start to actually have a heightened state of feeling anxious, or now they feel bad and wrong or shame that they're feeling that natural emotion and that it's not just instantly going away. So I say to them, how about the strategy of reminding yourself that it's okay to feel what you're feeling? Just like you'd want somebody else to tell you, It's okay to feel what you're feeling. It's natural. It's normal. You're a human being that has a wide range of emotions. Practicing telling yourself it's okay to feel provides connection back to yourself. As parents, we must model this. We must model to our kids, even telling our own self, it's okay to feel what I'm feeling. I don't just have to feel happy. I'm allowed to feel frustrated. I'm allowed to feel anxious. I'm allowed to feel sad. I'm allowed to feel nervous. It's okay to feel those emotions. And even reminding your child it's okay to feel them by saying them sometimes out loud. You know, saying when you're cooking, because you're 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 cooking and something's not. Pot's boiling up and you can say, Oh, I'm feeling frustrated right now. It's not working out the way I had planned. And that's just planting a seed for them that, Oh, you feel emotions too. Oh, it's normal to feel emotions. Oh, it's okay to feel them. And that can be the foundation where you can springboard from into, okay, but now what do I do with the emotion to manage it in a healthy way?
0: You are listening to Where Parents Talk on 1059 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino in conversation with Sarah Westbrook, emotional resilience strategist, author, and mom. Sarah, when we talk about emotional resilience, what trends are you witnessing among teens and young adults these days? And these are people that you're seeing in schools and elsewhere. Uh, you facilitate workshops with them. What kind of feedback are you getting from these groups?
2: Constantly I hear that they want to know that they are allowed to feel what they are feeling and that it's not bad and wrong to feel a wide range of emotions. I say to parents connection before redirection. Oftentimes we want to add logic into emotions and we want to redirect, you know, Oh, you're feeling sad. No, 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 you should do this. And you can feel happy again. When we think about ourselves, even as an adult and say, you're feeling frustrated or you're feeling sad. And whether it's a spouse, a partner, a colleague, a friend comes to you and they instantly add redirection and logic into your emotions. So you're feeling frustrated and they say, oh, you don't need to feel that way. You should feel this way. Oftentimes people tell me that is not helpful. (laughs) They start to feel more irritated. They're like, don't tell me what to feel. This is what I'm feeling. So, there's a place for redirection, but we want to start first with connection. We want to start first by saying, You are allowed to, I see you're feeling frustrated, and that's okay. And that's what teens and preteens tell me constantly. They just want to know that they are allowed to feel what they are feeling before logic and redirection is added into that emotional state that they're in
0: such a natural reflex for parents to want to do that right take that whatever that feeling is of their child that they're expressing and make it better somehow
2: absolutely so what if emotions weren't about fixing and changing them what if emotions were about supporting them because what if that was the greatest way not only to build connection but to remind your child that they are someone that feels a wide range of emotions, and that's okay but Finding healthy ways to move with and through the emotion is beneficial, not avoidance of the emotion, but awareness. Not suppression of the emotion, but management and self-regulation of the emotion. That becomes the skills worth practicing and modeling.
0: Now, as a mom yourself, Sarah, I'm curious, what is your approach to emotional well-being in your own home with your son?
2: First, we have, and I have this poster, too, on my my website. It's an elephant face. There's actually 25 elephant faces, and it goes back to the saying it's like the elephant in the room. Everyone can feel it, and no one's talking about it, and isn't the elephant in the room or in our own mind and body emotions, right? That very thing that you can feel but you don't want to talk about, and our kids can definitely feel them. So it's a poster that has 25 elephant faces on them, and... That helps a lot with emotional awareness because what I find is we assume that people are emotionally intelligent, that they just know that there's a wide range of emotions, but really that's not the case. It's, we, we learn it. We start to learn that disappointment is different than sadness, that anger is different than frustration, and happy is different than excitement. So this poster, although we have way more emotions than 25, really helps with just being aware of the emotion. Now, why is it important for us and our child to be aware of emotion? Dr. Dan Siegel did a lot of work on emotional awareness. And what he found through his research is when we can name an emotion, even to ourselves, I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling anxious. Now your brain sees that as information instead of completely overwhelming you. So even when you say out loud, I'm feeling frustrated. Now your brain sees that as information. There's a coin phrase, and I'll say this because someone listening I know is gonna walk away remembering this, and so it'll be worth it. Name it to tame it. I love it, it rhymes, and so name the emotion to start to tame the emotion, because the research showed that that was a way for your brain to see it as information, And then you can start the calming process. So emotional awareness, practicing that, I would say, is key. And then I would just want to springboard off of that and say, ask your child to write down strategies that help them move with and through emotions, whether it's walking, listening to music, talking to someone, screaming into a pillow, massaging their hand, have them write a whole bunch of strategies and have them post it somewhere that they can see it and you can see it. Because sometimes you will need to remind them of healthy ways to move with and through their emotions.
0: Lots of great tips and certainly great food for thought. Sarah Westbrook, emotional resilience strategist. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us today.
2: It's been my pleasure.
0: That's our show. See you next time.